In that is the policies are normally made by donors and the people don't really look at them and don't really sign off on them. And this, we did five webinars on aid in which many people participated, including three people who've done a dissertation overseas, two people who've written a book, Hina Rabani Khar as well. Everybody was concerned about the role played by donors and how it is not really peer reviewed and well thought out. And then tax policy is a total disaster. Transactions in this country, Shahid, are absolutely humongously costly. I mean, I personally just went through a very simple thing and I had to get six attestations and God knows how many little favors to get things done. And was, this was not even a financial transaction, it was a simple thing. Human resource management everywhere, including private sector as well as public sector is a disaster. State still rule the industry, industry has no professional uh, or whatever, there are no professionals anywhere. Markets are highly overregulated. Energy and so many other places, there's a huge, everything almost is a governance problem. It comes down to only one thing, a governance problem. So this is, these are the main messages coming out of our webinars. Now, the role of donors is, is interesting. It was well known in 1950, not today. This is a cartoon Shahid from your childhood as well, or maybe even before you were born, I would think. Uh, this is from 1950. Um, 1950, Liaquat is on crutches and donors at the back are saying, hey, keep the one crutches and they'll be fine. So from 1950s, people have been talking about it and then we, this still seems true. But now we are talking about exports. So here is a chart for a long term trend for exports and uh, imports both in trade. And as you can see, it's a curious economy. Imports are virtually flat except for a small dip. Uh, 2001, two, three, when we had a big crunch thanks to the atomic explosion. Um, otherwise, um, you can see exports are trending downwards. Um, it's a huge issue. And this is despite the fact that we've had so many fund programs. We've had so many fund programs. We've had a fund program almost every two or three years throughout our history. Every country, every, every government has had a fund program or maybe two fund programs. That's great. And this is despite the fact that we've also had a number of currency crises. We had five currency crises that we've written about recently and identified, and those currency crises need to look at. But we still believe, and everybody believes that export-led growth is important. That's why we are turning to you again. But we've had so many prescriptions, and yet exports keep going down. So Shahid, you've got an uphill battle. Let's hope you can convince us that there is an easy path to go. Um, meanwhile, our long-run growth, Shahid, is declining. Volatile and declining. And we are in a deep mess now. I don't think it'll, and productivity also is declining. But at the same time, Shahid, you'll also be amazed. Uh, the investment rate is the lowest in South Asia and probably even in the world. It's about 13% of GDP and coming down. So that's another thing, despite the fund program, despite so much advice, so much, so many prescriptions, we are still coming down. Here's my final cartoon that I leave you with. I showed you what was thinking in 50. This is the most recent cartoon, the IMF big boy riding us and our government running around helter-skelter over a craggy landscape with loans, but not quite knowing what to do. So here is where I'll bring you in, Shahid. Tell us what to do about exports, how to break out of this trap. Shahid, over to you. Thank you, Nadeem. Uh, thank you to the World Bank uh, and, and to PIDE for the honor of the invitation. It's, uh, I have to say, it's a real pleasure to be joining all of you, uh, albeit virtually in Islamabad, which uh, I last visited 24 years ago. So <laughs> I'm sure it has changed enormously since. 
it's not often that someone in the United States can feel a little envious over conditions in Pakistan, but these are you know, highly unusual times. Uh, relative to many countries and certainly the United States, Pakistan seems to have the upper hand in the fight against the coronavirus. The fight is not over and Pakistan surely cannot afford to be complacent. But from all accounts, infections and deaths have been curtailed. The latest news from the, uh, about the economy from the governor of the state bank, I saw his PowerPoint to one of the banks, is also pretty encouraging. Pakistan is managing to narrow its current account and fiscal deficits, which is a considerable feat in these troubled times. I, I don't know the background of this, but that's what I read in his PowerPoint. The uptick in business confidence, which he reports, is also a good omen, if true. Pakistan is certainly not out of the woods, but this data does pierce the COVID-induced gloom. I should also say that from where I sit, Pakistan's politics seem a lot less disconcerting. <laughs> that said, Pakistan's medium and long-term economic prospects, uh, as you very clearly point out, remain a cause of concern. You're familiar with all the reasons. There is the low rate of per capita GDP and productivity growth, as you noted, the rapidly expanding workforce, uh, 1.7 million people every year, the stagnation of exports and uh, in fact a decline, suboptimal levels of savings and investment, persisting fiscal issues, not to mention the threat posed by water scarcity and climate change in the future. Uh, I will focus on only one of these, which is Pakistan's GDP growth rate. If growth could rise into the high single digit range, many of Pakistan's problems near and far uh, will appear less daunting, as has been the case in, chi in China. If growth rate remains where it has been the past decade, uh, and as you say, the potential growth rate seems to be declining, both economic and social problems could worsen. There was a time when Pakistan's economy was a model for the Koreans, uh, and I'm reminded of this every time I write a paper on Korea or on one of the nimbler East Asian economies. And I do that with some regularity, and I'm doing one now. It is high time that Pakistan recovered some of the momentum and dynamism that brought Korean planners to Karachi in 65. Korea and several other East Asian countries have all managed to scale the income ladder by exporting. It wasn't because they had discovered a secret formula. It wasn't because their policymakers were rocket scientists or that their labor force was unusually skilled or that these countries with the exception of Malaysia were endowed with mineral resources. What the Koreans and the Vietnams of the world achieved was certainly not beyond Pakistan's reach. But here we are today. Vietnam has a per capita GDP of nearly $3,000, more than twice that of Pakistan. And Vietnam's reform and opening only commenced in the late 1980s. Pakistan had a head start of three decades. Pakistanis and those advising Pakistan have repeatedly underscored the desirability of export-led growth. I must have heard of this for, for tens of years. 
but each round of policy actions has failed to produce results. The share of exports in GDP has declined, as you said, and is a mere 10%. It's incredibly low for a country of this size. Now, in my view, leading with exports is the only way of sustaining a high growth objective. Given balance of payments and borrowing constraints, no other strategy can deliver the needed results. What I want to examine in the balance of my talk is whether export-led growth is feasible over the next two decades and more. I'll divide my talk into three parts. First, I want to say a few words on the old normal that facilitated export-led growth in the last quarter of the 20th century. Next, I will comment on the prevailing and evolving global environment, which is the less conducive new normal that Pakistan faces. And last, I want to explore the kind of strategy that could enable Pakistan to export its way out of a low growth equilibrium, which is where it has been stuck for a long time. What was the old normal? The last quarter, no, the last half of the 20th century was unusual. Tariff barriers were lowered by multilateral trade negotiations that began in Havana in 1947. Thanks to the diffusion of old and new manufacturing technologies, growth quickened in the industrialized countries and created market opportunities for exports from developing ones. Foreign direct investment and capital flows were increasing as controls were eased and multinational corporations began to outsource and establish subsidiaries abroad. This was aided by IT, which made it easier to manage dispersed operations. Transport costs were falling because of containerization and because of much larger cargo vessels. Market liberalization, thanks to the Washington consensus and others, stimulated private entrepreneurial initiative. An increased focus on macro stability reduced uncertainty and promoted private investment. The surges in inflation one heard about in the 1960s and part of the 70s kind of disappeared. Public spending on infrastructure narrowed deficits and boosted demand. From the late 1980s, the diffusion of digital technologies began raising productivity. Moreover, as you recall, the Cold War ended in 1989 and China began integrating with the global economy. All big developments. The winds of change favored developing countries and that rapidly industrialized and took advantage of export opportunities, countries such as Korea and several others in East Asia. The handful of first movers in East Asia also faced relatively little competition from other developing countries. That has changed. The entire 50-year period, which ended with the onset of the financial crisis in 2008, was an exceptional golden age. It was the old normal. The new normal dates from the official ending of the financial crisis in 2009. Any hope that it was just a short interlude followed by a return to the old normal was dashed by the COVID pandemic. Growth of global GDP and trade have both slowed. There is creeping protectionism which threatens to turn into a gallop. 
global value chains have begun to retreat. There are many who thought that industrial robots, artificial intelligence, big data, the cloud, the internet of things, and mobile telecommunications would reverse the declining trend in productivity. Those optimists are still waiting. But while we wait, countries need to adapt to the new normal and the ones that are quick to recover from the most recent crisis to search for and grasp the opportunities will be the ones that benefit from export-led growth. So what does the new normal mean for Pakistan? Let me make three points. First, a fresh approach to export-led growth is needed for several reasons. Even if trade, world trade recovers next year, the trend growth rate over the next several years may be lower than in the past. The future is not going to be a repeat of the 1980s and the 1990s. Competition will be fierce, especially among developing countries, marketing a narrow range of light labor-intensive manufacturers. Competition from Chinese producers will be especially severe. I'm pretty familiar with Vietnam and I was amazed to, to learn from the Vietnamese that their manufacturers of canvas footwear cannot outcompete the Chinese, although their wage costs are much lower than, than in China. Even if Pakistan can cut the tariff and non-tariff barriers which burden garments manufacturing, this industry, the garments industry, is past its peak. It will remain a source of exports as it did in the Korean case, but very likely its contribution to growth will decline. Finding other leading sectors with better export prospects and higher domestic content is an urgent necessity. And given how badly industry in many countries has been hit, this is the time to take the initiative. The time for tinkering, for muddling through is past. Pakistan must now raise its sights, think long-term, and seriously consider its own version of Industry 4.0. This must harness digital technologies and increase domestic value added by combining manufacturers with services. Servicification of manufacturing is the future. Second, foreign direct investment was the key to the export-led successes of China, and Southeast Asian economies such as Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand. Take out FDI and Singapore, the Singapore miracle would never have occurred. It could make a vital contribution to Pakistan's transition to its homegrown industry 4.0. This is the time to pull the stops to attract foreign investment in higher value activities. The time is right because the next few years, global value chains are going to be restructuring with multinationals relocating some of their production facilities, probably out of China. This is the time to move up the value chain. Automation and digital technologies will largely erode the advantages conferred by cheap labor. Vietnam now manufactures most of Samsung's smartphones and Intel has set up a massive factory to assemble and test its processors in Ho Chi Minh City. Thailand is a production hub for virtually all the major manufacturers. A concerted effort by Pakistani industrialists to woo foreign capital and technology might attract manufacturers 
of medical supplies and equipment, and also of high value technical textiles, sportswear, and sporting goods. The selling point for Pakistan would be the existence of a manufacturing base in all of these areas, a base that could be diversified and deepened. Another selling point is a potentially larger domestic market than in Thailand or Vietnam. One reason why the multinationals have piled into China is because of its huge market. People sometimes forget that population-wise, Pakistan is the fifth largest country in the world. With multinationals seeking to diversify the sources of these and other products, this may be the time for Pakistan to actively groom these industries and to build a large network of suppliers. In medical instruments and supplies, Pakistan's FDI strategy should aim to move into more complex products, including electronic components, implants, prosthetic devices, and associated services. I should note that Vietnam is one of the few developing countries manufacturing sophisticated hearing aids. There's no reason why Pakistan can't be in that business. This is the direction Pakistan should be moving in. A big shakeout of the auto industry is imminent as electronic vehicles displace internal combustion engines. A new components industry will replace the legacy system in Thailand. Pakistan should aim to get a slice of that pie. Third, services are going to be the big growth story of the future. Standalone tradable services and services bundled with manufacturers will help drive growth and generate most of the formal jobs. The strategy for IT-enabled services needs to be rethought and shifted to a higher plane. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are taking huge strides. Since I write about this, I read about this every day. And some of the entry-level IT-enabled services are being rapidly automated. Call centers, back office operations, translation transcription, help desk, telemarketing, and HR will be taken over by machines within a decade. They do not offer the opportunities they once did going forward. Pakistan has made in inroads into lower end markets, including the writing of software. But to capitalize on the growth of trade in digital service, their services means getting into the setting the country's sights on digital services that will thrive later in the decade and in the 2030s. The time for building the skilled workforce and the physical infrastructure to support these services is now. There are a number of stepping stones to export diversification into higher value activities that could initiate export-led growth. They will need to be underpinned by a mix of industry, technology, and urban policies. I will mention the four that need to be vigorously pursued in tandem with the widely discussed, all too frequently discussed fiscal trade and exchange rate measures, which you are all incredibly familiar with. First, Pakistan needs to begin narrowing the technology gap that impedes diversification and upgrading of its export mix. Just look at what China has achieved in roughly two decades and the innovative capabilities of a number of economies with populations of less than 10 million. To achieve this, Pakistan must create a 
science, technology, and innovation system that is equal to the task through investment in public and private research and development, and by building the research capabilities of a few leading public universities, specialized research institutes, and consulting entities. Investment in the physical research infrastructure will need to be complemented by investment in tertiary level STEM skills. Within five years, the government should target R&D spending equal to 1% of GDP. 15 years from now, Pakistan should be allocating 2% of its GDP to R&D. The spending needs to be focused on sectors that will drive growth during the next two and three decades. I don't believe that the country needs vast numbers of highly trained professionals to close technology gaps and become innovative. Sweden has 78,000 full-time researchers. Switzerland has 47,000. Finland has 40,000. Vietnam has only 69,000. And these are the countries that are near the top of the Global Innovation Index. On paper, according to the World Bank, Pakistan already has 74,000 full-time researchers. It's not numbers that matter, but how they are deployed across sectors, the quality of research personnel, the adequacy of the physical infrastructure, the density of collaboration with researchers overseas, and a domestic milieu supportive of innovation, which we do not have as yet. Pakistan must make improvements in all these areas. It need not take generations. Finland was a technological backwater until the 1980s. Vietnam has made major strides in little more than a decade and according to the Global Innovation Index is the top ranked lower middle income economy rated 42nd, whereas Pakistan is ranked 107th. Temporary shortages of, of technical skills can be alleviated by attracting foreign workers and tapping the overseas diaspora. Foreign talent and workers made a major contribution to the development of Singapore and Thailand and still do. 4 million foreign workers work in Thailand today, and nearly a third of Singapore's workforce is foreign. Pakistani firms and agencies will need to grit their teeth and pay the going international rate for these skills, and the government will need to make appropriate adjustments to its visa policies. I need hardly add that Pakistan must persist with its efforts to improve the quality of education at every level, and give due emphasis to STEM and soft skills. Second, for the purposes of export-led growth, Pakistan needs foreign direct investment of a particular kind. Chinese or East Asian investment in textiles, leather goods, and food processing will not promote export-led growth over the long run. These are sunset industries. Pakistan needs FDI in industries that will add more domestic value and have good long-term export prospects. In particular, Pakistan must attract a few major anchor firms that can partner with local businesses. The anchor firms can inject capital, transfer technology, deepen skills, help Pakistani firms to achieve scale, improve their management and marketing, and particularly inculcate a readiness to innovate. Creating an empowered agency to target and attract foreign firms the way Ireland, Costa Rica, Singapore, and Czechia have done would be a necessary step. The agency must have the authority 
and resources to cater to the requirements of the firms being sought. FDI can also partially offset the shortfall in domestic investment. Investment like technology is a driver of growth that should climb once confidence returns. But in addition to all these measures, Pakistan must redouble its efforts to improve the business and regulatory environment as investors take note of this and similar indicators. The logistics and transport infrastructure needs to be brought on par with competitors. The government with the support of the private sector should engage in targeted efforts to develop skills. This is not an impossible task. And as the saying goes, a crisis should not be wasted. It presents an opportunity to build better. Third, in order to attract FDI, Pakistan will need two major special economic zones, not dozens that provide state-of-the-art infrastructure, services, and amenities. The government should consider designating Sialkot as a special economic zone and making it an industrial hub which can compete with other destinations in Asia. In particular, it will be necessary to create a modern urban environment and public-private partnerships generating some of the required investment. Vietnam has been able to develop its industrial capabilities at great speed with the help of FDI and large numbers of expatriates who run businesses and are a source of technical skills and tacit knowledge. More than 200,000 Koreans live and work in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, and there are thousands of Japanese and Chinese working in Vietnam as well. Fourth, it almost goes without saying that FDI foreign workers and tourists will not flock to Pakistan so long as people feel unsafe, basic services are inadequate, it, recreational amenities are sparse, and connectivity with the rest of the world is weak. Pakistanis clearly relish the clean, orderly, rule-bound environment that they find in a Dubai or a Singapore or a Seoul. A start could be made in creating such an environment in Pakistan improving livability should be a priority. In closing, let me note that achieving export-led growth in the 2020s and beyond may be more of a challenge than it was for Korea half a century ago for the reasons that I have mentioned. Pakistan's low rates of saving and investment make attaining a high growth rate even more challenging. It might be possible over time to raise investment into the low 20% range but I can't see it going a lot higher. This means that much of the growth must come from improved productivity, which is why Pakistan must build its knowledge economy and narrow technology gaps. FDI can help, but most of the heavy lifting will be done by Pakistani firms and researchers. This makes it imperative to ramp up investment in applied research and to use all possible channels to acquire and assimilate technology. The government can take the lead, but as in most countries, the private sector must do its part. As it is doing so in China, in uh, Korea, in Vietnam, everywhere. The success of export-led growth will depend on private initiative, innovativeness, and readiness to pursue opportunities. I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Shahid. Very uh, interesting wide-ranging presentation. You've virtually given us a very easy time. We are trying to prepare a growth 
strategy for Pakistan. You've given us a lot of food for thought. Uh, Nadi, let me bring you in, but let me ask you to dilate upon what Shahid said, the two, three things that he said. One is that we should do this. Who is this we, Naji? Is it the government? Is the government capable of even comprehending this agenda? Two, Shahid said that research is very important and we should try and take a research budget to 1%. But right now, research budget is negative. It's not even 1%. It's, it's actually negative because most of the research that government claims is really just pure administration. They've got a number of funds that they, for example, they take the export development fund, they take the cotton development fund. These are all supposed to be research funds, but none of them are spent on research. They're all administration. Thirdly, that the, it's, it's the donors that really present the research. So, I mean, how do we square the circle? I, I hear what Shahid is saying is very important. Also, FDIs, Naji, FDIs that come to Pakistan ends up always in conflict. Karke, for example, um, you know, almost all the FTIs ended up in dispute, and we haven't got the kind of FTI that China or Vietnam has got. So, uh, we've got a number of questions from Pakistani side. Go ahead, Naji. We'll come back to Shahid later. Thank you very much, Nadim. And, 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 and thanks, thanks uh, Shahid. This was uh, interesting. We had a lot of exchanges uh, more than a decade ago, and we agreed at the time on, on a lot of topics. And I have to say, I, I don't have any major disagreement with uh, with uh, with with what you just said and actually I read your paper before coming in and I, I was trying to find something I strongly disagree with and I couldn't find it uh, so overall uh, 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 agreement on on the serious seriousness of the issues in terms of growth and the the, the, the need to to have an and the possibility to have an export-led uh, uh, growth strategy. Um, and to answer your question, Nadim, and I want to go directly to your question, who can carry that? Uh, that's, the, the, that's, of course, the government um, and public policy. We're talking about public policies. Even if the actors that will make it happen, as uh, Shahid mentioned, will be private actors, domestic, international, uh, private enterprises will be at the forefront of productivity growth and export growth is no doubt about that. They work in an environment and who provides this environment public policy and the government and does the government has the capacity to do that? Yes, even if you mentioned at the start that there's been many attempts and many programs, it is not a, an, 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 it is not uh, the, capa the individual, the capacity constraint of the government to put in place public policy that can be successful, that is in question here. It is the, the incentives, the distortions that are in the economy, and I'm gonna come back to that. So I want to be very clear on the, on the, on the answer to your first question. Um, I've been here two months only, and I had a number of uh, 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 works with uh, the authorities. And one thing I can tell you already, based on my experience in, a wide variety of, of, of countries before, including countries with higher capital uh, uh, income per capita than Pakistan, is that the, the issues don't appear to me to be um, intrinsic capacity of the of the of the of the of the government of the administrations to implement uh, 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 policies. Um, it is, uh, uh, but let me let, let me come to the. Uh, uh, reasons, in my view, that and or issues that need to be addressed 
to 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 implement an export uh, led strategy that can be successful um, and I'll come back to your question on on, on research and development um, and and the FDI one, one thing I want to say at the outset I mean first I want to start by by a piece of good news looking at the numbers because when when we look at the numbers on export and on growth and on the issues that Pakistan faces there's a lot of uh, challenges so I want to start by a positive twist uh, because uh, the, the, the pandemic has of course uh, hit Pakistan very hard as the rest of the world uh, yet we can see some rebound in merchandise export uh, compared to the same months in, 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 in 2019 uh, that's the data from uh, from from August so so there is it was quite unfortunate that the, the pandemic hit because uh, the, the Pakistan has done, uh, quite a number of reforms, microeconomic reforms and exchange reform in particular, and we, we, we could see before the pandemic hit um, uh, a response that was starting to, 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 to show before the pandemic uh, uh, hit. This being said, um, uh, first of all, the first point I, I want to make is that um, uh, to the answer of whether exports will be and should be a big part of increasing the, 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 the growth rate of Pakistan, absolutely yes. Uh, can export, as in export strategy or the instruments for export can, can be seen independently from a growth strategy? Answer is obviously no. There's something special about exports, I'm coming to it, but the, the deep rooted reasons of why um, uh, uh, long-term growth rate of Pakistan is below potential and has declined over the past decade. Um, uh, also explain why the export performance has been weak. Uh, growth is about productivity, productivity of firms and their ability to, to, to export comes from their productivity in great part. And I'll, 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 I'll say a few things about what's specific about export and, and what has been constraining uh, growth over the years, and, and, and uh, Shahid mentioned it very clearly, are a number of factors, uh, some related to, I would, I would put a big bucket linked to uncertainty, um, macroeconomic uncertainty, um, uncertainty in the business environment, um, uh, not, not necessarily the, 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 the level, but the uncertainty investors face and the unlevel playing field and insufficient competition when some investors face, a, a diff, uh, uh, face uncertainty in how they're going to be treated by the regulatory environment, that's a big disincentive to growth. And the FDI experience, and that comes to your third question, Nadim, the when you say um, uh, there's conflicts related to FDI, I think we, we we hear a lot about the some big investments that 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 uh, that face uh, this type of uncertainty. But it applies across. I mean, uncertainty in what you are going to face in terms of policies, in terms of how regu how regulations will be applied to you, and how uh, and whether you will face a level playing field with other uh, economic actors, um, is a huge deterrent for investment. Um, and the third area of uncertainty and volatility that we've seen in Pakistan over the years is, is um, variation in the commitment to reform. 
um, and, 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 and these boom and bust cycles of reforms and then less reforms. And that, that is uh, for investors who are looking for the returns in the medium term, this, this question of the sustainability of reforms and their credibility and their stability is absolutely central. If you look at countries that have had growth accelerations over the past decades, they didn't get everything right at all. And in fact, Shahid's paper is very, very nice about uh, looking at the initial conditions of East Asian countries. Not everything was fixed in the business environment or even conditions of investment or in the competition scene in East Asian countries. But what they were able to do among other things is to have sustained um, uh, 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 credible progress in reforms over the years and some adapt and, and adapting and course correcting, which is something investors uh, uh, definitely look for and which the data on growth acceleration uh, show very much. It's not about fixing everything. It's about uh, the credibility of sustained reform and the signals that come out of out of out of reform. So I would just wanted to say this at the outset on 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 what's constraining growth. But now export is special. Uh, exports are special. I mean, first the special because they they and we have evidence uh, from this and papers uh, by Gonzalo uh, who's, who's, who's connected and others have shown this on Pakistani data. Exporting firms uh, have higher productivity than non-exporting firms. Um, and there's all, all kinds of benefits from having a growing export sectors, from having more firms enter the export sector and, the, and, and have uh, uh, FDI um, uh, 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 copied the country in terms of productivity growth. So export is special in terms of the capacity to pull growth up clearly, and, uh, and of course, because of market access uh, at, the, at the international level. Uh, exports are also special in terms of the policy uh, uh, content, and then I want to uh, end with this, um, uh, on, on what needs to be done to boost exports. So uh, Shahed has shared, has shared a, a long list to which I agree with, uh, particularly in terms of the improving um, things that will improve productivity in general will benefit exporters by the particular, including improving the business environment um, and uh, reducing trade costs. Um, I mean, that's probably the one topic on which um, uh, cross-country evidence and country-level evidence is really converging and, 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 and unanimous, if I can put it, is, 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 is how much uh, 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 distortions in the tariff structure um, uh, can be a disincentive for, for export. Even protecting final goods uh, from, from international competition uh, reduces incentive for firms to, to seek uh, export markets if they're protected, especially in a large market uh, like Pakistan. Pakistan is not a small country where firms uh, like Tunisia, where firms have no other way than, than exporting uh, to make profits. If you have high tariff barriers on final goods in a huge market like Pakistan, then a firm uh, uh, feels can feel much less pressure um, uh, uh, to export. So cost of exporting is important. Um, the, the last point I want to make, and it is in Shahid's uh, uh, suggestions, is industry-specific 
interventions. And that's a tricky one uh, because all the examples he cited on East Asia of, of, uh, of strong export-led growth and joining global value chains um, uh, uh, involve a certain degree of industry specificity. He mentioned electronics, he mentioned other sectors of high value added. And the question there, uh, and East Asia's experience provided some answers, is how much should government put in place, um, and the government of Pakistan in particular, put in place industry specific policies or industrial strategies um, to, to correct market failures in this space. And uh, uh, my view on this, I don't have dogmatic views of this uh, topic, um, except that um, uh, what, what, what there are cases, there's clearly cases of market failures where the government has a role to intervene so that an exporting, especially in the tradable sector, an exporting sector develops. Um, and often these market failures have to do with coordination failures. So let me take the example of Morocco, which could develop a huge auto industry over the past two decades. It all started with a, with a very efficient port in the, in the town of Tangiers that uh, allowed to reduce trade costs, comes back to trade costs significantly. Uh, and the industrial zone for, for auto industry was developed around the port. This is clearly a coordination failure that the private sector wouldn't have sold by itself. And auto industry wouldn't have come to Morocco if, there, if those trade costs and, and other um, uh, inputs like, uh, like uh, training institutions were not provided on site. So there is a case for solving coordination failures. The problem is that many governments uh, resort to, to subsidies or to price distortions. And we all know that price distortions, price subsidies or tariffs or protections don't solve mar uh, coordination failures. So I think, I think industrial policies and interventions in sectors to boost uh, tradable sectors and exports after the basics have been solved in terms of uh, uh, level playing field, uh, macro stability, reduced trade costs, non-distortive tariff policy, etc., could be made. This case could be made, but we need to be governments need to be very clear about what's the problem they're trying to solve. Uh, it requires competition and openness. Protection married to industrial policy is a recipe. For, for distortions and, 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 and failures. It requires transparency on how effective are, are these policies and a lot of data. And if there's one thing we need to remember from a number of, of East Asian experiences in this field is that they course corrected. Uh, you know, Taiwan started making videos in the 70s, video machines, and they stopped when, when they couldn't get market share in them and they stopped all, protect, all interventions in the sector. So we see, we speak a lot of successes. We can learn much more from the failures of East Asian countries in certain sectors and this ability to backtrack when they were wrong. This took a lot of data analysis and, and openness and market tests uh, on, 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 on export. Let me, let me stop this. On, the, on bringing research to 1% of GDP, Frankly, I don't have uh, um, uh, strong views on this. I don't think I don't think uh, development policy is about checking boxes. That's something Shahid also also agreed with. But I don't think there's a target number that Pakistan needs to reach in terms of its public spending on research. Uh, I'm much more a micro person who 
um, we'd be interested to understand why firms don't invent the, invest themselves um, uh, into uh, research and development and the effectiveness of existing research programs before increasing spending on research can the existing uh, technical research be more um, applied and geared toward increasing productivity in the private sector let me end here over to you thank you very much Nadi. thank you very much uh, very uh, you know, wide-ranging comments again thank you ashraf saab i'll come to you the ministry of commerce you can perhaps wrap it up they put a lot of stuff on your table from coordinating or correcting coordination failures to market failures to understanding the labor trends in the world to understanding technology trends in the world to carving out a strategy for the future to negotiating fdi i see a lot of role for you guys are you guys capable of doing it or will you get us into trouble like the ipps we negotiated with the ipps on the you know advice of the world bank and now we are realizing it wasn't the wisest thing in the world to do. So, Ashraf Saab, what do you take? What do you take as your role going forward? Are you going to be able to navigate the waters, as Shahid and Naji say? Let's see. Thank you, Dr. Saab. Uh, let me just uh, give a, uh, begin my conversation with just a bit of correction in my uh, introduction. I'm currently no more working in the Ministry of Commerce. I have moved as Consul General of Pakistan and Sydney, and I'm also the Trade Minister of Pakistan here. But I'm glad that you uh, included me in this. Uh, I can give my views as a practitioner of uh, uh, public policy for the last more than two decades, and I can give you a perspective from the public sector as well. Let me begin with if uh, export-led growth strategy is a desirable growth strategy, or we have other alternatives as well. And the answer is, my take on this is that probably we don't have any alternative to uh, a growth strategy other than an export-led growth. And here come the numbers. The numbers are last year, we returned to $45 billion worth of imports uh, from a peak of nearly 60 billion uh, during the, the CPEC-led imports. Out of these $45 billion worth of imports, there were only three to $4 billion worth of imports which were used in the export-led, uh, export-oriented production. 40 to $41 billion are spent on a consumption in home, either directly in the form of finished goods or in the form of intermediate goods or indirect imports into the domestic consumption. This explains our, uh, also the boom and bust cycle of our economic growth as well, that whenever the growth goes higher, we have always the same kind of cycle we are in. The, as the growth is always the consumption led, it's the domestic market oriented, you don't have enough dollars to, to, to uh, sponsor those, to finance those, those imports you have to deliberately go into a policy reversal to uh, slow down the growth and then come into a stabilization board and then again start creeping up. This cycle is there just because our growth model is not export-led. The problem is that when you consume 41 to 42 billion dollar worth of imports every year, Inside the country, where are those $42 billion going to come from? 
because your exports are only 20, 20, 21 billion, unless this industry, which is domestically focused, it pulls up its socks and comes to the export-led side, this boom and bust cycle is going to continue. Here I also, I, I beg to differ on, on, on some of the points with very learned colleagues, being a practitioner, so, so just give me that leeway of, of differing with, with, the, uh, with the scholars, that we need to bring this kind of investment or that kind of investment. Sir, we need to see during the last so many years, uh, our investment has been 80% of the investment coming into this country has been into non-manufacturing sector. Where is that investment going into? It's again going into the consumption in this own country. The, the, the kind of investment which we have been bringing is always a market seeking investment. The investment which we need is only the efficiency seeking investment. That is the investment which can take you fine to the next step. And that is to become efficient enough in production to become an export led, led growth production. So this is where I, I take to, to the next part of this, this conversation of, of of your webinar, that what are the, the, the policy tools available to us to stimulate and export-led growth? Hmm. Sir, the, if you're a businessman, again, a pra practitioner speaks here. If you are an entrepreneur, where will you invest the money? The answer is very simple, where it's the cheapest to produce or where you make the, the, the maximum profits. Where do you have the, the uh, where can you, you produce the cheapest? where you have the most efficiency-driven competitive production environment. We have to develop that environment. And again, I, I, on, on one more point, I, I beg to differ with my scholar colleagues that we need to leverage our domestic market for, 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 for attracting invest in, investment into production. The problem is that the, we have been doing uh, following this this recipe for too long and it has never worked i don't see any reason as a practitioner why it will work the next time as well the issue is all kinds of big multinationals are already working in pakistan what they are not doing is that they have always used pakistan as a market they have been producing here too expensive too costly unable to produce even a unit unit outside so they are finding a very snug environment of local domestic market here, highly protected uh, uh, market, very high uh, uh, tariffs on, on the finished products, which Gonzalo has been, been uh, presenting a thesis many a time, which is creating an anti-export bias in the market. There is no reason for these multinationals or these this FDI, which is coming into Pakistan to go into export-led production because they are finding a very attractive domestic market. So this is the issue which we need to address that we have to make up our mind that any production which we are going to, to build into, any growth model which this country needs to follow, it has to be an export-led growth model. The other models simply have not worked. I don't see any reason why it will work this time. Let me conclude towards the, the end. The, in, in the end, I'm sitting currently as, as, as I speak in one of the developed markets of the world. In Australia, I'm, I'm, I'm the trade commissioner of Pakistan in Australia. 
in this market the market dynamics are are changing uh, drastically and it's creating a lot of opportunities for for the countries if they can can shake up their own 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 lethargy or or their own they can put their own house in order here are some of the trends in the market one trend is the economy is being rapidly digitalized the social distancing norms are making the the doing business completely transforming the way the the, the world used to transact business one this socially uh, distance compliant retail out, retail mechanism is going is becoming completely uncompetitive these stores are no more economically viable to maintain because in a huge store when you can only for 10 or 15 customers there and the cost of transaction simply goes too high so you have to go online so here is one step where the advantage of sitting in 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 a market is getting neutralized so you can go in the e-commerce you get the opportunities and you can you can approach this market while sitting back home the, again it boils down to one point are you competitive enough to enter this market here is the question which which we need to answer another one another opportunity is here the opportunity is that these disruption of supply chains during this pandemic has uh, shaken what what dr shahid yusuf has said the the global value chains have been challenged in the the way they used to operate so now there is going to be a lot of regionalization of production and in some some cases the domestic productions are going to to be there and another trend which is coming out of it is that the many markets are looking at diversification of their uh, their sources of supply so here comes again an opportunity for the countries like pakistan to come put the the production or uh, the the environment for production in order to become competitive and efficient enough and here is the market which you can you can grab i i stop here i will be available for more practitioner oriented questions if they are coming coming my way and and oh, ashraf sir thank you very much thank you very much ashraf sir you are in a beautiful place sydney i uh, noticed um, on your uh, sort of title here that it said sydney but i didn't want to take the liberty but i congratulate you on your posting shahid just before i go to the audience i think lots of people have questions i'll go to the audience very quickly um we'll have a chance when i'm in dc soon but i want to ask just one or two questions quickly before i go there um the shahid uh, first thing please do send us your paper we don't have a copy of your paper it will be good for pid to have your paper and if you allow it we'd like to um published the working paper even pdr if you like but that's up to you we'll talk about that later but very quick question to the entire panel um you know the, the uh, lots of um shahid also said a crisis must not be wasted um ashraf sab said we've had a consumption led economy uh, naji also said that you know we've had a lot of reform let me ask you a very simple question i don't want to as i said i don't want to ask get into wide ranging debate but a very simple question as i said at the beginning we have ha studied the five currency crises the five major crises that pakistan has had and many other little crises too most of our crises are of our own making primarily one thing that we've done throughout our history is to keep an overvalued exchange rate what we call a consumption led economy is an overvalued exchange rate even today as we speak we are going towards an overvalued exchange rate because as you'll see the government is seeking to 
block Putin capital controls as well as Putin export incentives. So we're getting into an again overvalued exchange rate thing, issue. So the key question that I want to ask all of you is, what is your take on exchange rate policy? Should we keep an overvalued exchange rate or should we have an undervalued exchange rate? How should the exchange rate function? The fund also, I've had a running battle with them. Shahid, you'll remember Masood, and we've talked about it very often. The fund also ends up getting an overvalued exchange rate over the course of its program. Or every program, the exchange rate has got overvalued. So the fundamental problem with the, with the overvaluation of the exchange rate, and I think you should all of you should speak to it if you can. The second uh, systematic problem that I see is, in picking industries, as Naji said, we should sector pick, industry pick, and industrial policy, et cetera. We have sought to protect. And we have protected way too much. We are protecting the car industry. We are protecting the electronic industry. Now we are getting into a new phase where we are going to start protecting mobile phone making here. And I really worry about it. Once we start making mobile phones, goodbye to Apple and all that. And even now we are getting into also protecting the, um, the uh, network industry. So pretty soon we may have a closed network. Is that a good way to go? Should we have high protection rates? What should we do about a protection policy? How should we look at protection policy? And related to that also is the question of our subsidy policy. We've had a very varying policy on subsidizing exports. And we did a paper some time ago in Bide looking at export subsidies. They don't seem to work, but yet we continue to do export subsidies. So just these three broad ranging questions that you can talk about. One is exchange rate value policy, then protection and subsidy policy, just broad arching, overarching themes. Shahid, you can go first. Shahid, unmute yourself. Uh, thank you, Nadeem. Um, and thank you, everyone, for, for their commentary and suggestions. Uh, to which mostly I agree. Let me address the three questions that uh, Nadeem had. First, with regard to exchange rate policy. Uh, when I've studied East Asia, and I've been doing that now for 40 years, in starting with Japan, going on to Korea, going on to China and other countries, Every single one of them pursued what I would call a very aggressive exchange rate policy. And by ex aggressive exchange rate policy, I mean that the exchange rate tended to be undervalued and that they saw that, that undervalued exchange rate as one of the policy instruments which they used in order to sustain their export-led growth. They used many other instruments as well, but this kind of undervaluation seems to have been quite important. And as you know, in the case of China, uh, it's been especially important, at least through the early part of the 2000s. I realize that there are various kinds of issues now about having an undervalued exchange rate. You run afoul of various other international institutions and, 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 and rules and regulations. But an overvalued exchange rate is definitely a no-no, and especially not for a country that has any ambition to become an export-led type of economy. So that was one. The second thing is about uh, industrial policy. Again, if you look out throughout East Asia, the successful countries that have pursued industrial policy are the ones who, let's take the case of Korea, who uh, targeted particular industries, whether it was shipbuilding, iron and steel, electronics, automobiles, they targeted them uh, they assisted them through a variety of instruments, particularly financial instruments, but also tax policies to set themselves up, initially provided 
domestic market protection, but this, all these incentives were predicated on these industries becoming exporters. That was critical. So they were given a sort of a growing up period. They were given a sort of a grace period of a two or three years in which they could sort of develop themselves and find their feet and get the technology and train the workers and so on. But once that was achieved, it was required that they export. And if they did not export, the subsidies, the various kinds of supports that were provided were withdrawn that they were able to hold the feet of these industries to the fire if they did not export. And most importantly, they were unable to capture the governments. They were unable to force the governments to continue with the kind of uh, subsidies and supports they had provided if they were not performing. Now, now I should also mention one other aspect of the Korean miracle. Yes, they were companies like Samsung, Hyundai, Sankyong, all were provided these incentives if they kept on exporting, but they also had the advantage of a relatively protected domestic market. So they did price discriminate. Most of their earnings came from selling abroad, but a lot, lot of their profits came from selling domestically. So it was a very particular kind of approach they took for a while until a time came when these industries didn't need that protected domestic market in order to make profits. So if Pakistan or any other country wanting to kind of use industrial policy, it has to be very clear at the outset that this kind of sort of infant industry approach has a very, very short time horizon and that this would, any kind of support would be withdrawn if the industries do not perform. Mm -hmm. Likewise, when it comes to foreign direct investment, there should be a requirement as the Chinese, the Koreans, the Malaysians, everyone has had, that if you invest in our country, you must export. You cannot use a protected domestic market as a means to fatten up your profit margins, but actually make no effort to export. So if we do not have that kind of requirement on, uh, on, on the multinationals, they'll of course not even bother to, to, try, to, to try and export. Um, I think on, the, on, on, on other aspects, uh, um, I, I let Neji and others speak on this. But this is this the two things I'd like to say. Go ahead, Neji. Neji. Yes. Unmute. Yes, Thank, thanks a lot. Um, so very quickly, so on, Yes, overvalued exchange rate and export growth is don't go together and it's a no-go. And we have seen this uh, around the world. The evidence is very strong on this. Um, this being said, there's recent evidence, and sorry, I'm gonna cite my colleague again, but there's this paper by Martin Bruin, Gambetta and, and, and Gonzalo called Slow Rockets and Fast Feathers. I don't know if it's, uh, if it's available yet, but I think it was uh, shared, uh, shared with, uh, with a number of you that showed that the response of Pakistani exports to exchange rate movement have been very asymmetric. So, so um, uh, uh, appreciation led to decrease in exports, but devaluation, depreciation didn't have, so there's a bit of a hysteresis effect, which may mean there's a, information asymmetry, but exports haven't reacted historically um, uh, enough. The elasticity of exports to, 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 to exchange rate depreciation have not been strong. 
which means that ex, you know, uh, exchange rate competitiveness is not enough at all. And, uh, and if you don't fix uh, other issues like uh, information asymmetry or, or export promotion or uh, 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 credit markets to enable exporters to take some risk and cover their risk to enter foreign markets, then you won't have this mechanical effect. And we have many examples. As much as overvaluation of exchange rates don't go with export growth in the data, we also have many examples of devaluation that have not led to response on exports if domestic issues on the business environment and competitiveness and productivity are not solved. So that's on exchange rate. Um, the, the, the point on, industri on industrial strategy, I just want to give a quick two examples to complement what Shaheen said and which I agreed to again. One, I mentioned videos in Taiwan. I just want you to hear this to show you how much the success of, of these examples of interventions relied on the ability of the government to credibly withdraw from, from interventions when things are not working and put all of these interventions to the export test. That's what, uh, what Shade was mentioning. The competition from global market test was a hard constraint. You cannot hide on the, on the domestic market, even if uh, uh, Mr. Ashraf, I agree with you, with a country the size of Pakistan, domestic market can be a strong, uh, a strong uh, um, uh, 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 tool to, to, to boost growth and productivity growth, if it's not done at the expense of competition and openness to global markets. So the example of Taiwan is the following. In the early 70s, when Japan was going into videos and uh, um, uh, export, it was the first exporter of videos in the world, uh, Taiwan got into the video market. They said, we're going to subsidize videos, the production of videos, but we'll subsidize it for five years. If in year five, you haven't reached 15% world market share on exports and exports only, then we'll stop the subsidy. They reached something between 10 and or 11% market share by, by 70, 77, I think. You know, you know what it is to be 10 or 11% market share World Macature videos in, in uh, five years later, thousands of jobs behind the industry, the political pressure to say, look, this is a big industry, it's exporting, it has 10 plus percent market share of the world, let's keep it, was very strong. Government of Taiwan cut the subsidies and the support overnight, and the and the and the the the, the sector died basically, which was a super strong signal on how serious they were to draw back inefficient policies in a transparent manner with a clear uh, uh, export target. Same example in Malaysia. Malaysia, Khazana's uh, 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 investment fund, a few years back, 10 years back, said we're going to get into uh, shrimps. And they basically said whatever, Malaysians eat a lot of shrimps, as you know, and they said to the Khazana, whatever you sell on, in Malaysia on domestic market, we don't care. Your target is export to US and EU, and only that. If you don't reach that target in three years, you're out of uh, any support. And, and they're still there because they, they succeeded. So I think this, this credibility and commitment of government to transparently pull out the support when things are not working is absolutely fundamental. Over. Thank you. Ashraf Saab, do you want to say anything? Well, uh, on all the three points, 
my views are as as follows on exchange rate i think uh, a lot of distortions have been already removed i think the government has been been doing a good job in in keeping the the, the exchange rate very close to its its uh, fair value so i what i foresee is that this trend is going to continue but very interesting let me share a piece of my own research i recently conducted the research on vietnam and and pakistan and it's uh, uh, on uh, exchange rate interestingly uh, vietnam's exchange rate fluctuation is four times more sensitive to uh, sorry vietnam's exports are four times more sensitive to exchange rate fluctuation than pakistan it means that though the the exchange rate does play a role in in export competitiveness uh, on on either side on positive or negative side but uh, our sensitivity to to exchange rate fluctuations is lower than vietnam the second is protection yes i can't agree more doctor uh we uh, the ministry of commerce has brought the tariff policy a year ago the government is completely on board on that tariff policy the tariff reforms are already underway uh, a lot of uh, learned members on on this panel that they, they already know that the the protection the unlimited protection for unlimited uh, time period that is gradually being being taken away i think the the policy is in the right direction uh, you see in in the last two three budgets it has gradually gone down and 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 i am glad that we are on on the right course on subsidy uh, my my comment daksab is subsidy yes you need to have subsidies at some strategic level at some point of time the problem with developing countries and pakistan sadly is no exception is that once you make somebody addicted to subsidy it is very difficult to get wean that sector away from it we have the nascent sectors which have been nascent for the last 40 years and this is the problem which continues thank you ashok sir thank you very much i think i'll proceed to the audience right now too many people would like to ask questions so i should not intervene sara nazmani go ahead sara nazmani assalam alaikum sir My name is Sarna Zamani. I'm a research fellow at IBN Pied. Uh, this was a very interesting discussion, sir. I have learned a lot. I have a mix of a question and a comment, both, sir. I feel like the role of agriculture sector is always downplayed when we are talking about uh, exports. But the stats that tell us that more than forty percent of Sarah, I think labor is in agriculture. Seventy percent of the women, sir, who work are they are in agriculture. So, sir, I believe a systematic investigation is needed to see why agriculture is not improving. I mean, if you look at the member of parliament, sir, at any time of time, uh, time point of time in this country, you will see that majority of them are agriculturist or industrialist. But somehow they still can bring improvement to these sectors, sir. I don't understand why, and I would want comment on this. Thank you. To the panel, can you please note down the questions? Let me get all the questions in, and then I'll. Come back to you, or I'll come back. There are too many questions. I'll come back in a short while. So, Javed Hassan Sab, Javed Hassan, Chairman of the Skill Development Fund. Javed Sab, no, is Chairman of NAFTTC, National Vocational and Technical Training Commission. Uh, so, I just wanted to say thank you very much for the presentations. All of it very interesting. I think Nadeem has asked quite a few of the questions which I wanted to ask because regarding uh, industrial sector. But one of the things I keep thinking again and again 
There are various interventions the government has made, whether in terms of subsidy, whether in terms of export promotion, again and again, yet they fail. One of the things I keep asking myself, why isn't the political economic debate about the less government? Why don't we have a libertarian stick in Pakistan? Why don't we actually talk the best thing that we can do is have no policies. Forget about policies. Let's have less policies. Uh, why do we need... I'll give you one example. There's an IPO taking place, and I'll be very short. There's an IPO taking place uh, in the steel sector. The gross margin in that IPO for that company is 24%. The effective tariff is 20, 25%. The, the, the tariff is direct tariff is 25%. And then additional tariffs altogether bring it up to 40%. There's no up import substitution because the feedstock and the energy cost, 95% is imported. So there's no question of import. Yet this industry, and I'm not going to name the industry, but gets about 45% tariff protection. And it continues to going. And it's not even something strategic. The kind of steel that is produced is for rebars. And I can tell you sector after sector that has this. And this has all come from very considered and probably even discussed in PIDE from various policies. So my point is, why do we have policies? Won't it be better if we actually start removing policies, bring about free trade, I all a very I mean this is a cheeky question. Isn't it time that Pakistan catches up to the repeal of corn laws in 1846 in, in, in Britain? Are we still at that point where we are, we are thinking of basic laws? Someone asked about agriculture. In agriculture, there's various forms of other subsidies which also lead to misallocation, where, where we produce sugar, uh, sugar cane when we should probably not be doing anything sugar cane. My bigger question is whether it is Shahid Hussain Sahib or the World Bank, why don't you actually talk about some very critical things that we actually do not need the government and, and people should rise up. And yes, there'll be a period of great disruption and people will fail and there'll be unpleasantness. But at, at, at the end of it, there might be something good as well. We, we, I don't think we are in a position where we can repeat what happened in Korea. We are not a Vietnam, which is a communist country. It isn't where you can direct some things. It is actually probably impossible to repeat a Vietnam because it's, it doesn't have that kind of control mechanisms. So in an uncontrolled mechanism, what are we trying to repeat when we keep giving the example of Vietnam? Probably it is through chaos and, and, and the dynamism of chaos that will... So that's my question. I'm sorry. It's a Good statement point. I'm making. Good point. But... Good point. Now we'll get to it. Bashir Ali Mohammed sir, Ideas Boardroom, Bashir sir. Unmute yourself, Bashir sir. Unmute Karle. Can you hear me? Can hear you now. We can hear you. Bolie. Okay. Thank you. I, I, I feel that uh, the homework done uh, by the speakers is not really enough. And they are coming to conclusions which I feel are unfair. Mm -hmm. Because they don't see the sectors and the locations where the export industry is there and why certain locations are doing better than others. If you look, I was in Islamabad the other day and I was having a big argument with Hafiz Sheikh Saab and Razak Daud because they were increasing the price of gas for the export industry in midterm. And the way they did it was by just closing the gas. And they said, if you don't give us the, accept the increase, we will not open the gas. I mean, this is the way the government, you know, talks to you. Now, this is not in anywhere else in the world 
you would talk to exporters. But that's besides the point. What we feel is that that I told him, I said, you talk about Sialkot, you know how much is Sialkot export? I said, even just one Landi, which is in Karachi, exports 50% more than the whole of Sialkot. Karachi, in just textile, which is your largest sector, exports six and a half billion dollars of well-made textiles, six and a half billion. Just Landi exports one and a half billion. And so people have no idea it's location, and in this location, what they do, they close our gas two days a week. So how can the exchange rate help us? They close our water. Now for three days, we have no water. We're putting recycling plants, we put everything, and we are just trying to create water for ourselves. We can't take these big plants anywhere else because they are, you know, our turbines are there, our heat exchanges are there. The investment is something like so big, it's $500 million. We just can't shift it, many of us. And we have our customers, we are giving air freights. So our profitability is totally gone. So the government doesn't understand the cost of doing business. The harassment of doing business is so much. And then they're saying that this exchange rate is not helping. You know, I could have exported 50% more this year if they had given me all the, just, I'm not asking for any subsidy. Just on world rates, if they give me my inputs, I can export 50% more. But they're just stopping me, stifling me every day. How can I be, I mean, in spite of this, I'm the largest exporter to IKEA in the whole world. How can I be the largest exporter of home textiles in the whole world for the last 10 years if I, if I didn't have the productivity of this? So I'm still keeping my customers at any cost by recycling my water, by doing everything possible in the world. And, and also, I have to be the most compliant because some of these retailers are the most compliant in the world. So I think you people need to talk to us more. Come and see us or we can invite us to Islamabad. We are ready to talk to you and understand why the exchange rate interventions are not helping us and why we are having this boom and bust cycle. I mean, how much we lost for the exchange rate? And you know why we didn't stop? Because we had no exit strategy. We couldn't close down. So you know that's why your exports don't go down as much when the exchange rate is out. When it goes up, it takes us so long to modernize and balance and get back on our, foot, on our feet. Then again, you go bust. So you don't give us that time to really get the momentum. And so these are so many other factors also which we could talk to you, and I don't want to take so much of Now look, there's no cotton in the country this time. Suddenly the whole crop is gone. We'll be importing more cotton than we produce. You know this, this year? More cotton than we produce, we have to import. And the quality is rubbish. If you produce from Pakistani cotton, you're just making B-grade goods. It's so bad. So nobody understands this. So what advantage do we have? By importing cotton, like Bangladesh, you have polyester industry has full protection here, so you cannot do it. How do you manage? And still we are managing, still we are competitive, still we are increasing. If we had same policy as Bangladesh, I can tell you we could double the exports. Just give us the same policy as Bangladesh has. Why are Thank you, why Mr. that no, uh, you, you can't do it and nothing has worked on all these things? I mean, I find it very hard. I mean, for 50 years, I'm the largest exporter in Pakistan. For 50 years, in spite of all the difficulties. So it's possible, even then. But then I think I feel it very unfair that people come in from abroad and tell us what we should be doing. I think they should listen to us first, properly. And even the local people, the economists who make policies should listen to us. Thank you so much. There you go, Shahid.
Thank you, Bashir Saab. Bashir Saab is one of our biggest exporters. You've heard his view. Let me bring Shahid Sattar from Aptamine. Aptamine is the largest um, textile organization in the country. Uh, Shahid, this is exactly, Naji, this is what I was talking about. Vietnam and Pakistan are very different organizationally speaking. Our government is not capable of doing the same thing as Vietnam. So to say its capacity is not an issue sounds a bit incredulous to us because the government wavers, st staggers, you know, hesitates, doesn't know anything about the country, and we need to figure this out. Shahid Sata, go ahead. Uh, so first of all, I agree with Mr. Javed Hassan Saab that uh, uh, our policies need a huge shake-up in terms of cutting them down. We need less of the government policies. Secondly, Ashraf Saab said that uh, they're making the changes in policy. But the changes that they're making are not in the critical sectors that are required. For example, in man-made fibers, uh, they don't touch that. Uh, for example, other stuff that uh, really can change or make uh, uh, a radical difference, that is not addressed. And what they are touching are those items in the tariff lines which actually have no impact in reality. Now, uh, and also uh, what uh, uh, our uh, textile sector feels is that give us our uh, inputs at world costs and see how we perform. Um, and that is the failure of the country that uh, we are not given the inputs for long enough. I mean, even now we have to fight for uh, gas and energy prices at regionally competitive levels every six months. And every six months, the government changes its mind. Uh, who and how can anyone invest in a, in that short time frame of a uh, to look at stuff or uh, again uh, putting in renovations or upgradations to your machinery or new plants to meet uh, expanded uh, growth orders they they require investment and investment can only happen if there is continuity in policy and continuity in policy uh, I believe, has to be enshrined in some uh, diktat. Otherwise, uh, any export-led growth will not happen. Okay. Mohammad Khurram Saab. Khurram. Khurram Saab is not here. Okay. Ijaz Ahmed Minhasab. Okay, Ahmed Fasi. Um, hello. Assalamu alaikum ji. Ahmed Fasi hai. Ji. Doctor sir, may I? Ahmed sir, go ahead. Ji, uh, thank you very much, sir. My question. Ji, can you hear me? We can hear you. Just introduce yourself and go ahead, Ji. Uh, my name is Ahmed Fasiji. I've uh, worked in Ministry of Commerce for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, presently, I'm working on a project of USAID. It's called mm -hmm. uh, Pakistan Regional Economic Integration Activity mm -hmm. as a trade and policy advisor. I have had the honor of working with Ashraf Saab for quite some time. 
my question to the panel today is that do they think Pakistan has the tariff policy, has the tariff structures in place that can, uh, you know, encourage new or uh, foreign investors to establish uh, manufacturing in Pakistan and they can be facilitated in establishing efficient uh, supply chains uh, with the region or, or with, uh, from all over the world. Uh, because uh, the panelists had mentioned that Pakistan did not uh, attract foreign direct investment that went into export. So my argument is that that can only happen if you have a tariff structure that allows them to source uh, their imports and their raw materials uh, cheaply from uh, places they can get hold of. Um, so that's uh, one. The second uh, question is that, uh, second comment is that presently we have 16 different combinations of import duties, uh, of custom duty, of additional custom duty, and of regulatory duty in textile value chain only. So uh, how can, uh, you know, uh, that kind of mindset help us to uh, follow export-led strategy, export-led growth uh, in the uh, true sense of the word. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, okay, now we just, we must wrap up the questions. So Ijaz Minhas sahab, if you can speak quickly, otherwise I'll have to call it off. Ijaz sahab, Okay, Ijaz sahab can't seem to get his mic going. Khuram sahab, do you want to speak? Yes, yes, sir. Do you um, hear me? I can hear you fine. Go ahead. Okay, okay. I'm a student from Namal, Islamabad. I just want to uh, like um, raise an issue, raise an investigation about the current current problem that the, um, the our, our small like <laughs> sports sector is facing. It's about the tax ref, ref, refund. Like um, the sales tax is 17%. But the refund it, the time takes some time, so they have to rely on um, like um, the loans, and this make this makes the this uh, trade costs uh, more. Governance issue, yes. So this has to be addressed. Fair enough. Okay. Uzma, Thank last you. question. Uzma Zia. I'm Usma Zia, economist from Pied. Uh, my observation is that in Pakistan, it appears that we are living in, in an uncertain environment. And although we have identified several uh, problems of our economy, but economy is somehow trapped. It's not responding even. It's not converging with uh, even uh, not converging with the neighboring countries. Bangladesh is performing uh, more well than us. And I agree with the all the panelists that there's market failure, there's coordination failure, but we try to see how we can uh, apply some short-term parallel strategies to develop our markets and uh, to bring export-led growth. Okay, great. Well, folks, you got a good round of questions. Let me get back to the panel. Naji, would you like to go first? Thank you, Nadim. Uh, happy to I'll be very quick. I mean, first, let me go reverse, and I won't take all the points. I'm going to leave uh, uh, time for my fellow panelists. I mean, first, on tax reforms and the duty exemptions, and fully agree with the with the person who intervened. And we have um, we have had consult a lot of consultations. Uh, my colleagues have on, on on this, and it is a big issue, especially for smaller firms. And, 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 and 
medium-sized firms, and the and the data and the analysis show that it is a big constraint. So anything that can be done to simplify the process to access the exemption, uh, that anything that can be done to reduce discretion, to to make these uh, reimbursement uh, online. I'm a big fan of putting everything online that's transparent and can be fast. Would help, especially smaller firms. Big firms know how to deal with that, uh, and 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 therefore it's again. A system that's supposed to encourage export exporters, but it benefits infinitely because of the way it's implemented, because of the discretion and difficulty, larger firms. On the tariff structure um, uh, question, uh, um, so not only I, I, I think, and we've written uh, on this and shown evidence and comparative evidence, um, that the, the average tariff should continue to go down. And I agree with the Ministry of Commerce, there's been improvement, it should continue to go down. But it's not only about the average, it's also the dispersion and the, and the, and the, and the variation in the, in the tariffs, including non-final goods tariffs. There's a bit of this uh, uh, thinking that uh, you, know, you can keep uh, protection on final goods, that's okay because they don't come as input. Uh, but but that's, that provides the anti-export bias that uh, Pakistan economy suffers from. And I would think not only about tariff, I would think about trade costs more broadly, you know, non-tariff barriers, the, 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 the time and it takes to, to get uh, uh, goods through borders. So I would take this, uh, this uh, tariff question in a broader sense as a, as a as a trade, uh, trade, uh, uh, trade costs more, uh, 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 more broadly. On on the 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 colleague from uh, from IDS boardroom. I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Happy to uh, uh, listen and have your impact or your input more more directly. I'm just you know honestly reading the papers that have been written on Pakistan exports and talking. Uh, to my colleagues, but I don't think we disagree. Uh, I, when I was saying that. Uh, um, uh, you know, this paper that showed that the response to devaluations of Pakistani exports have, have historically be, be, been low. The reason that's shown in, in, in this paper and the evidence is exactly what you were saying, is that if the overall business environment is not improved, if you have so much constraints uh, that are pending, uh, that increases your cost of doing business and exporting, then, uh, in, you know, if these were lifted, then your response as an exporter, as you just said, would have been much higher. That's exactly the point we're making. Now, does it mean we need, Pakistan economy needs to wait until everything is solved so that exports grow? No, again, the evidence from many countries, and I cited the Morocco, Kenya, Turkey, Rwanda, all these countries that have very different systems than Vietnam, doesn't need to be, it doesn't need uh, or, or take to be only a Vietnam to have uh, export acceleration. All kinds of countries at different level of incomes have been able to do that, but, but it takes to get uh, uh, policies right, and, and, and to, have, to have sustained improvement. So someone mentioned continuity in policy. I think this is absolutely crucial. And that's, that's, that's very hard to get, but it's absolutely crucial. It doesn't take to solve everything, all the problems, infrastructure, investment, climate, taxes at once, but it takes continued credible uh, uh, commitment and uh, and somebody, somebody said we need we need a credible time frame to to invest. That that is critical, and that's what we've seen in other countries. And this is where where Pakistan need, needs uh, needs to, to 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 improve, in my view. I'll stop here. Over. Thank you, uh, Ashraf. Sir? sir, let me go uh, over a few questions. Let me start with the the lady who asked that why agriculture sector is not 
making enough contribution towards exports? The short answer is it's the productivity crisis in agriculture sector. There is hardly anything in which we, we produce at the, the international productivity levels. The only way which we have been following <clears throat> to ensure the farm income is to increase the prices of the produce rather than increasing the productivity. It may provide the farmer a, a short-term income in, in the domestic market, but we are unable to export the, the, the produce abroad. Uh, then there was one question on less governance. Javed Asan Sab said, why the government does not just pull out? There is no industrial policy in the country. Why uh, uh, this model is also not really delivering a lot. So you can look at it that if having no policy is also there, it means there has to be some affirmative action on certain things. Hey, gee, yeah, sorry, Ashraf Sab, there is a, a very good industrial policy in place. We are protecting cars. We are protecting fertilizer. We are protecting um, sorry, um, um, uh, ghee. We are protecting so many things. How can you say no industrial policy? There is a very sharp industrial policy. Okay, let me move move forward. Then Ahmed Fassi asked that uh, with this tariff structures, uh, can can we have the efficient supply chains? The answer is no. That is precisely where the tariff policy has come from, that we provided, uh, uh, the Ministry of Commerce provided, or the government provided a framework under which the tariffs are going to be rationalized so that we make sure what Aptma's shed sub asked that every exporter, indeed every industrialist or every producer has the right to have access to competitively priced inputs. This is full stop. This is something which we need to work on. So there are layers of, of distortion in the tariff structure, which the tariff policy is trying to address. Bashir Ali Mohammed Sab said that, okay, he is doing great. Uh, I know he is doing great. I know Bashir Ali Mohammed Sab for, for quite some time. But uh, the, what I, I, I emphasized was that why all those sectors, he belongs to that category of those uh, export uh, businessmen who are producing those $21 billion for this country. I was talking about, and they're using only consuming three to $4 billion worth of imports. I'm talking about all those who are consuming $41 billion and not exporting anything. So why they, 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 they are so finding the domestic market to be cozy enough for them to, to, to think exports. My last will be on uh, the, the tax refunds. Tax refunds, I think that the, the, the issue has improved. The government has done a lot of uh, uh, recently proactive refunds. I'm sure 100% are not the, uh, uh, paid off, but the, the situation has improved a lot during the, the last one year. Thank you, Dr. Nadeem. Thank you. Shahid, give you the last word. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you very much. And thank you all for so many very, very interesting questions and, and, and comments. Uh, I'd like to, I mean, I tend to entirely agree with Neji that any successful export-led growth country, any country that has succeeded as an export-led, uh, on an export-led strategy, has been a developmental state that has consistently pursued a strategy over multiple administrations without periodically you know, changing course, 
uh, adjusting policies in, 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 in erratic ways, it has maintained this continual focus. If you do not maintain that continual focus, as others have pointed out, there's too much uncertainty, investment doesn't take place, and you know, other kinds of distortions build into the economy. The second uh, feature of successful uh, export-led growth countries is that there is a continuous consultation between the government and the private sector, that they do their utmost to try and coordinate policies and uh, accommodate what are the problems that the private sector faces. Because without this kind of coordination, it's not easy to achieve this kind of policy coherence. The third thing which they do is that they do have one or two agencies who are very much in control, that if they do have policy that these agencies can coordinate the activities and actions of all other agencies as well. So these are the various things that are needed if a country is going to pursue export-led growth successfully. Um, I should also mention that um, several countries have had very successful public sector manufacturing activities. If you look at Taiwan and Nigel recognize, TSMC, which is the largest producer of semiconductors today, which is the largest contract manufacturer, is a government-owned company, it was started by the government. One of the most successful producers of iron and steel is POSCO, which until recently was a government-owned uh, company, a steel company in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Korea. Likewise, many of the successful companies in Singapore are government-owned, but somehow these companies work well, they are efficient, they are exporters. Uh, so you can have government involvement in production without it becoming a, a, a kind of an albatross. Um, I have worked now on 40 different countries in the world, thanks to the World Bank. I have not come across any country where a very small government, a non-interventionist government, a government that was virtually not present has been a success. So when, when you say, let's have less government, a smaller government, that the government withdraws from policy, I don't see how any country would succeed with that sort of, a, uh, that sort of a, a arrangement. The only one that comes even remotely close to this is Hong Kong. And even in Hong Kong, the government's hand the, the was, was everywhere. And it worked through a large number of oligarchs that dominated the Hong Kong economy. So I'm, I'm of the view that uh, a strong government, a committed government, a developmentally uh, oriented government is the one that is going to be successful in Pakistan. And as, as, as you pointed out, Nadeem and others have, this government has, this government and other governments haven't been focused in that way. My last point is with regard to agriculture. I've been writing a lot on agriculture for African countries, for Central American countries and others. And I find that this is a sector which is on the cusp of a major technological revolution. It is also a sector facing a lot of challenge from climate change, from water security, scarcity and other things. And there is enormous room to increase productivity. I realize Pakistan's productivity is abysmal, but it need not remain abysmal because the technology is there 
to improve productivity. It's digital technologies, it's every other kind of biochemical technology. And it could make an enormous difference to the country uh, for GDP growth and to exports. So this is a sector that deserves attention, it deserves investment, and, but most importantly, it deserves technology. And on the technology point, my final statement, you've mentioned that the amount that the public sector invests in research is minuscule, and much of it goes into administration. And my point here is, we are not talking about just public sector investment in R&D. In most countries, the public sector is a minor partner in R&D. Most of the investment is by the private sector. Currently, on paper, Pakistan invests 0.24% of its GDP in R&D. Maybe much of it comes from the public sector, but it has to go up to near 1%, and that 1% should not be the government's contribution. It has to be the private sector's contribution by and large. The government does can pump prime, can incentivize, but it's got to do it. Without that technology, you'll never get productivity up to the levels that Pakistan needs to go to. Thanks. You're muted, uh, Nadim. you're muted. Sorry, Shahid, just before I uh, close, I have to bring in Mr. Babar Bedat. He's the logistics guru of Pakistan, and he has a point to make about logistics and exports. So listen to him, it'll be very educational. Babar Sab, please go ahead and mute yourself. Hello, Zainu, Gansunu. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Very interesting discussions and comments from everybody. The panel is especially very worthy. Um, uh, Ashraf Saab, I've uh, known for a long time, Dr. Shahid and everybody, and of course you, Nadeem Saab, it was very enlightening. I think I would quickly like to add over here and mention that uh, the biggest non-tariff barrier to the growth of global trade in many parts of the world has been the lack of logistics connectivity. It is extremely important that we have smart logistics and, and, and seamless connectivity, otherwise, otherwise, you know, it is very difficult to move forward. So as as energy is important and vital for industry, and as water is vital for agriculture, and as you would get, whether it's produced or manufactured goods, you need to, de to deliver them somewhere. You need to have very efficient logistics, transport, shipping all over the world. And that is a big problem in Pakistan today because we don't have our own shipping lines. We have very few shipping lines coming here. And today there are three consortiums who are controlling everything. So the cost of transport and delivery is very high for Pakistan for its imports as well as its exports. Now, we are one of the few countries in the world which does not have a ministry of transport and logistics. We have got a shipping ministry which actually handles the ports and we have got a communication which does only roads, but we don't have a focal ministry for transport and logistics. And I think that is a fundamental requirement for Pakistan to have that because today transportation per se is no longer shipping. It's no longer port to port. With the common use of the container, it's become from point to point. And for that, we have no 
knowledge base, no research, nothing at all. Um, our, our association tries to do things. I, have, um, I, was, I was the founder chair of the National Association, and I have re more recently been the head of the global organization called FIATA, which is the world's largest transport and logistics organization. And, at, and in, in these forums, the constant endeavor has been to provide countries with less opportunities with connectivity. Um, countries which are landlocked and countries which are like Pakistan with 1100 kilometer coastline, three ports and not a single shipping line. So, so these are the challenges we'll have to look at. Ships themselves are not that important. Today, logistics is important. So you need a door-to-door -door connectivity which has to be enhanced. I've just helped work with the government to put together a logistics and transport policy, which is going to go in, which has gone in for cabinet approval. This takes care of some of the fundamentals, but I think we need a lot more to be done in this area. Dr. Saab, this is just a few points that I wanted to put in, into you, your- Babar Saab, but I must also add that you are remiss. I've implored you, I've asked you many times, let's do a logistics webinar so that we can all learn what you're saying. Right. I think one of the big problems is making policies in the dark and getting them to a minister. As Bashir Ali Saab said, he was arguing with Hafiz and with Razak Daud. It's time we had an open public debate rather than argue and implore ministers to do their your bidding. And I'm, I'm also amazed that you think setting up a ministry would be, we are trying to reduce the number of ministries. You want the number of ministries to increase, and you think a ministry will do research. But nevertheless, we lately... No, no, I'm not saying to increase. If you put up a transport ministry, it takes for us seven ministries. Today, we work with seven ministries. We are going, going to be one. Railways is separate. Uh, customs is somewhere else. Shipping is separate. Uh, air freight is under Ministry of Defense. It's ridiculous. You know, you cannot get anything. We'll I, have responded to your I have responded to your, um, your statement of having a webinar. I sent you a message. I'm available whenever you want. I'll be happy to do it. Okay, let's take it up. We'll do that next time and we'll take it up. But sure. uh, let me get back now to close. If anybody wants to say anything, the logistics thing, otherwise uh, let me ask you a very simple last question, Shahid, and then we'll move on. Um, Shahid, everybody says export-led growth. Now, if I remember right, this was just primitive regressions that led to this thing. When you used to run a one variable regression, somebody put growth on the left, right-hand side, on the left-hand side and exports on the right-hand side and there was export-led growth. But now as, as you fleshed out and many of you have sort of fleshed out, that look, there is a significant variable that everybody's missing out on the other side, which is the state of the governance, which is the state of institutions, which is that's Moglu Robinson's story. We, can you compare our institutions to China and Vietnam? We have a colonial setup that is still lumbering along. Our legal system, we've had many webinars on this. Our legal system sits in the 1860s, 70s, penal court, et cetera. Our judicial civil service system sits in, God knows what time period. We are trying to struggle through, as they used to say in, 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 in the old uh, language of Basant, when you had a kite that used to tear up, you used to put on little stickers on that and make it fly. You've got a Chepio Valley kite that's going on. We have no fundamental reform of our institutions. Those guys had a whole revolution, changed their whole institution structure, and they moved on. Now my question to you is, can we just ignore the institutional structure as most international development experts seem to think? 
that the domestic institutions, even though Asimoglu Robinson, we quote and we say, yes, it matters. And we see large number of gross regressions went nowhere because ultimately the institutions that matter. Yet we have these prescriptions that go past institutions and say things will happen. Is that a good take or a bad take? Go ahead, Shai. And Naji, if you want to come in, Na go ahead. Nadim, if I, if I could come in really quickly, because I'm sorry, I have another engagement I will, I will need to, to check out. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as a development professional, and I'm sure the others connected will tell you that uh, governance and institution are at the center of what we do. No, I would certainly not say that it's not uh, important. I mean, all the, 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 the points I made about policy predictability, policy sustainability, about transparency, about the ability to commit to stop inefficient policies that are protecting some and others, all of these are uh, technical terms that refer to the, quality, the, 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 the governance institution. So I don't think we can disentangle uh, technical policies from the governance context and the, and the institutions and their capacity to implement them and to commit to them and to sustain them. So I don't think there's any disagreement uh, okay. uh, on that on my side. Thank you. Okay. And, and thank you to everyone. Thank you, uh, Nadim and thank everyone. You, Sorry, I, I'm going to need to, to check no out. Thank, thank you very much. We'll see you soon, Nadim. Go ahead, Chad. Go ahead, Chad. Uh, Nadim, as you know, I've been working on China since 1980. Okay, so I have followed every twist and turn of the road that China has followed. And when China started out in the, in the early 1980s to try and you know, modernize its economy, open its economy, there was immense resistance from entrenched interests. The whole system was completely against the idea of a market economy, of liberalizations. It was encrusted with the controls of every kind. It had a profound anti-export bias. It was a closed system and with closed minds, okay. And then I see what happened over a course of just the 1980s. There was this enormous change and a readiness to transform this encrusted uh, sclerotic system of government to make it into a developmental state and to, to, in a sense, achieve the kind of performance that has, you know, uh, has been just extraordinary and everybody recognizes it. So what you pointed out that you have a problem in governance and I fully recognize and I can, I can very well see that this uh, system of governance has been an enormous hindrance. But you know, Pakistan's current system of governance is a lot easier to reform and change than the Chinese system was in the 1980s. There has to be a will to do that there has to be a desire to become a rapidly growing economy, a prosperous economy. If people do not want a prosperous economy, if the government does not want a prosperous economy, if it doesn't set its sights on high growth as the Chinese leadership did, then of course you won't have any results. Then of course we will meet again 10 years from now on a webinar like this and be talking the same old stuff. So I think the answer is clear cut. If you don't want it, if the government doesn't want it, if the elites don't want change, then of course the governance system will remain a tremendous bottleneck for Pakistan, but it need not, and it can be changed in a matter of years if the will and leadership is put to the test. Thanks.
Thank you very much, folks. Thank you, Shahid. Thank you, Naji. Thank you, Gonzalo, for helping us arrange it. Thank you, Ashraf Saab. Hopefully, we'll see you in Sydney someday. Um, this has been wonderful, Shahid. I'll see you in Washington in a few days. This has been wonderful. There you go. The final take really is it's not export-led growth. It's really institutions-led growth. And it's really up to the people. I agree with you, Shahid. I've said this often enough in many forums in Pakistan. We actually don't want growth. We as a people don't want growth. And that's a fact. It's not just the elite. Let's not fob it off. Hardly anybody wants growth because growth basically comes with fundamental change in attitudes, cultures, and behaviors. As you talked about, uh, you know, you said that uh, foreigners won't come in, whether for tourism or investment, unless they have an environment which is friendly to them. For example, as you said, pointed out to leisure and the ability to do, uh, you know, enjoy themselves and things like that. People don't come in. Um, so essentially, the problem is we want to have our cake and eat it too. And that is an anti-growth statement, unfortunately. So I should say we should, re we should amend the whole export-led growth um, framework to saying we want a change-led growth, a reform-led growth, a governance-led growth to improve our thing. I see Gonzalo raising his hand. Gonzalo, go ahead. Gonzalo, unmute yourself. <laughs> Hello. So I, I, I just wanted to add one thing uh, before we close. That is, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Shahid. Thank you so much, Ashraf. I know it's extremely late in Sydney. Uh, thank you so much to, to Naji too and to Nadim. But I, what I wanted to mention is that uh, this is the first seminar, the first webinar in a series of webinars on, on trade and, and export-led growth for Pakistan. And the next one and the following one are going to look into how non-tariff barriers are affecting uh, export potential and then how actually the tariff scheme, something that was mentioned today a little bit, we're going to go more in depth uh, on how tariffs are affecting uh, export potential. So uh, watch this space, more is coming. I, I just wanted to take two minutes to, to say this uh, so thank you so much, Nani. Thank you very much, Gonzalo. Gonzalo, this is a great help. Thank you, everybody. Um, anybody else was saying anything? No? Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, Shai. Thank you, Naji. Thank you, Gonzalo. Thank you, everybody. All the best. And we shall see you, inshallah, soon. Khuda hafiz. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.